About every two years here we do a series on marriage, and you may ask why uh, do you visit that so often uh, every two years to do a series on it. Let me tell you why. Last year in McDowell County there were 266 weddings, 266 weddings last year. Last year in McDowell County there were 176 divorces. So last year in this county, there were actually, let me change that, there were 276 weddings and 166 divorces. Doesn't help the number much, but uh, that's a staggering statistic that for every uh, couple of weddings, there is a divorce. The reality is, as you sit here this morning, I know that there are many single people always in this service, and for you, this is preparatory work. Anytime you hear a marriage series, it is to help you know the husband you are to be or the wife you are to be. And this morning, I am addressing the husbands. All right, so husbands, uh, you need to sit up straight. If uh, anybody takes notes, it ought to be you today. Uh, This is for you or the prospective husbands as we will look into this uh, thing called marriage today. I also realize that in a church this size, uh, Uh, This is the second service of two this morning, the first of which was packed with more chairs in here than are are out right now. Uh, I also know that with a church this size, there are some of you that are headed toward the second statistic even as I speak. You may not have mentioned it to me. You may not have sat in my office, but your marriage is on a quick road uh, at this point toward disillusion. And so this message is timely for you this morning. You don't need to shove it off. Also know that there is a danger. There is a Puritan saying that the the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. And so there's a danger of you listening. I want you to listen to me. Please listen to me, men, right now. There's a danger of you listening to this sermon and it will melt the hearts of some men and it will harden the hearts of others because you automatically dismiss it as if it isn't for you. It is for you. If you're a man and you're in this room this morning, it isn't an accident and the sermon is for you. It is for me. I must at this moment... No matter what situation I'm in in my marriage, you must at this moment, no matter what situation you're in at this marriage, you may be frustrated with your wife right now. I'm asking you at this moment to say, God, open my heart to hear your word today. Paul addresses marriage to the Ephesians. And certainly Ephesus was a place that needed such an address. It was a place of debauchery and sin where women were demeaned and where men treated women as another piece of property. And so Paul enters into that arena to this young Ephesian church and says to them, this is what needs to happen between you and your wives. And this is how he couches it. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Paul gives two ways that husbands are to love their wives, and men, I've simplified it, so you can walk out of here and have it tucked away up here. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, number one. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church, all right? Love your wives like Christ loved the church, husbands. And husbands, number two, love your wives like Christ loves the church, Those are the two uh, imperatives, commands that kind of roll out of this text here. 
And so I want to say to you this morning, you can do that. Uh, if, uh, if you couldn't do it, it wouldn't be in Scripture. So it's in Scripture to say you can love your wives like Christ loved the church. And you can love your wife like Christ loves the church. How so? Well, verse 25 points it out. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This phrase, gave himself up, is one compound word in the Greek, which means to give oneself over to. This immediately draws us to the cross. When we think of how Jesus loved the church, we go to the cross and we see that historical event where Jesus gave himself over to the Roman soldiers who crucified him. He gave himself over to the Jewish leaders who shouted that he should be crucified. He gave himself over to those who plucked his beard from his face, who smacked him across the face, who lifted up the bitter vinegar for him to drink rather than water when he was thirsty. That is the example of the demonstration of giving oneself over to another. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, what is the result of that? That's verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, this is not a New Testament idea, that of God. Uh, of Jesus being the groom and the church being the bride is an Old Testament concept that Paul adapts to New Testament theology. As a matter of fact, if you go to Isaiah 54, verse 5, you'll see the verses on the screen. You will hear Isaiah say to Israel, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. What does that mean? The God who created the universe chose Israel to be his wife. And this imagery, this uh, imagery, this metaphor of a husband and wife uh, occurs here between God and Israel. But it's intensely specific. The Lord of hosts is his name. And that phrase, the Lord of hosts, means the God who fights for you. We might say the Lord of armies. What does this say about a husband and his wife? Uh, You ought to fight for your wife. You thought that was just redneck, but it didn't. It's biblical. All right? You ought to fight for her. If, if, If there comes a time when you need to defend her, well, defend her. Stand up and defend her. If you have to stake your territory, stake your territory. If you have to call somebody off, call somebody off. If you have to pull redneck, I'm just giving you the right to do it. The Lord of hosts is his name, is what he says. God fights for his wife, who's Israel. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it, and there's absolutely everything right about it. Every woman I've ever met wants a husband who'll go to the mat for her. Amen, women? Yeah. The Lord of hosts is his name. Check it out. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. 
For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflow and anger for a moment I hid my face from you, Israel had sinned. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. In this passage we find two or three different roles functions of God the husband of Israel Uh, he fights for Israel he redeems Israel and he has compassion on her Stu Weber wrote a book several years ago still a good read uh, for men and it is Isaiah 54 uh, 5 through 8 tender warrior every man must be a tender warrior The warrior part is when you fight for her. The tender part is when you listen while she struggles, hurts, or simply talks more than you do. All right? While she wants to tell you something, and when she begins to talk with you, in your mind, perhaps, as a man, you think, well, you could easily get to the point if you just did this, said this, A, B, and C. Most men think that way, not all men. Most men think that way, but women tend to want to communicate all of the surroundings of a story before they get to the main point. And so uh, the compassion, the tenderness of a godly man is that he listens and he is able to take his wife's vulnerability and handle it. He is able to emotionally be there for her. There are things that women experience that men never will, and all men are glad. All right? God just made us different. But we don't dismiss those things. Uh, God is pictured here as a tender warrior of Israel. Now, what is the result, uh, Ephesians 5 says? The result is that he may present her to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. All right, you must abandon, all of you who think this way, uh, you must abandon the thinking of analogy here and think metaphor, mixed metaphor, because there are two metaphors at play. All right, the first one is that uh, Jesus is pictured as the father who walks the bride down the aisle. And secondly, he's pictured as the groom who waits for the bride to come down the aisle. Both pictures are here. We'll say, Jerry, I can't get that in my head. Well, with metaphors, uh, Paul has a right to do this. All authors do. Uh, You can have one metaphor, and as soon as you're finished with that one, you could just go on to another one. If you're doing an analogy or an allegory, you can't do that. It just has to follow all the way through. So Paul's doing metaphors here. Jesus is both. So, So how does that work? Well, if you're a father of a bride, you've done this. You have come into those doors with your daughter on your arm, and there she stands in all her beauty. She is a thing of beauty. She is beautiful. I've done 30 to 40 weddings. Uh, I've yet to see a bride who got to the doors and went, oh, I forgot to, to look in the mirror. That's just never happened. Now, I hang out with the grooms, you know, over in Groomville. Uh, we all hang out together. And grooms don't look at anything. 
They don't. I mean, they just put on the suit. They hate the shoes. They complain about the, the patent leather shoes that are uncomfortable. We stand over there together. Uh, their hair, you know, they'll, you know, do the finger thing through the hair. That's it. Brides have spent all day. They've gotten fingernails done, toenails done. They've gone to get their hair done by somebody. Maybe somebody else has done their makeup. They've looked at themselves in the mirror again and again and again and again. And when the father stands with his daughter, he looks over at her, and she is a thing of beauty. He is so proud of her. Most likely, he's bought that dress she's wearing. And he, though, though he's going to miss her greatly as being in his home, he is honored to walk her down that aisle. That's Jesus Christ, Paul presents here. He walks us down the aisle. He looks over at us and what we're dressed in, he bought. What we're wearing, the reason we look as good as we look, church, is because he he bought it for us. How did he buy that for us? Through his blood shed on the cross Hebrews 12, 2 says that to fix our eyes on him, verse 1, verse 2, because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was Jesus' joy that kept him on the cross? You were. You mattered that much to him. Oh, I've been through, through weddings with many fathers of brides. And do you know what? For the joy set before them, they endure it. What is the joy? Their daughter is their joy. The daughter is the father's joy. And the daughter stands there and beaming in the father's uh, 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 shadow. She is his joy. He will endure it. If he hates being in public, he'll do it for her. If he hates being the center of attention, he'll do it for her. Why? Because she is his joy. She is his joy. For the joy set before him, he endures that. For the joy set before him, uh, he endures her future husband. Right? Oh, I dread that day. I do. I interview everybody Hannah goes out with on any, on any serious basis. They got to sit down with me. And I remember doing that a few years ago, and this guy wanted to ask her out, and he came into my office. Bad mistake on my turf. All right, and I have a CD player behind, my, behind me that has a remote control, and I put classical music on it. And I would ask him a question and literally crank it up, and it would go, boom. And he would look at me. His knees were shaking. I put him through the ringer. I lie you not. Why? Because I love Hannah, and if he's not good to her, I'll kill him. <laughs> Period. I mean, that's just where I am. I'll just clear off a spot and take care of business. That's just how I feel, all right? And so, so I remember sitting with that kid in my office and him, him just answering all kinds of questions like he had no idea what was in the interview until he landed there. Um, and she said that was the only guy who ever asked her out in college, I mean high school, mission accomplished. <laughs> high school guys should not date, period, all right? I'm glad my son is sitting here for this sermon. All right, so, so, so uh, the father endures that. Jesus, for the joy set before him, hung naked on a cross because he loves you. 
But then Paul immediately changes the metaphor, and Jesus is the groom who's standing down there. All right, so, so I will tell you, wives, uh, you've never felt this feeling. But when you are the groom and you stand down there, and if you're a traditionalist, you haven't talked to her or seen her all day. And she's not let you see the dress, so you have no clue what it looks like or what she's going to look like in it. And so I'll stand with those groomsmen back there, and we'll talk and make small talk and all that kind of stuff. And then we, we come out, and I'll tell them, I'll say, listen, I, I'll tell them, you know, from the get-go, this isn't about you. Nobody cares what you look like. <laughs> they don't. I mean, they'll look at that groom until the bride gets there. And, and they'll go, oh, look at him as he's waiting. But as soon as the doors open and that music starts and, and the mother of the bride stands, everybody stands, and they turn to the door. And when they do, all eyes are on her, including the groom's. And I'll watch them. If they're emotional, tears will start to come down their face. They're beaming. She, her radiance, brings light to their face. They cannot wait to see her come down the aisle. Do you know what that makes me wonder? Does Jesus lean over the balcony of heaven and go, God, when? When will we have this massive marriage supper of the Lamb that's described in uh, Revelation? When will they come? When will uh, the doors swing open and I go get my bride? When will this marriage take place? He is the groom who waits for the church that he has bought with his precious blood. He is the groom who waits to see his bride who is adorned with the jewelry that he has put on us. He is that groom. He is the groom who courted us, who came after us. You say, oh, Jerry, that language is just way too much. Let's go to Ezekiel. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 16. I warn you, we're about to hit some graphic language. All right? This is Ezekiel uh, talking about God speaking to his bride, Jerusalem. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. In, in other words, that's saying uh, you, you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Your birth is nothing to write home about. Your family lineage isn't much. That's what that says. We'll keep reading. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths, not only did you grow up on the wrong side of the tracks, but your parents didn't even care enough for you, O Israel, to to birth you well. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Israel, Israel is described here as hopeless and helpless and dying until God looks at her. 
I want you to hear me. Please listen, men especially, because we have super inflated egos, all right? Men struggle with this. We think we are, uh, have more muscles than we actually have. Uh, we think we can run faster than we can. We think we can lift more than we can. We just, we do, all right? We just think that way, and it hinders many men from coming to faith in Christ. Why? In order for you to... In order for you to receive Christ, you must admit that you are helpless, hopeless, lost, dying, lying in a field, wallowing in your blood, and if God doesn't step in, you will not survive. The reason the gospel is so wonderful is that the bad news is so bad. That's the way Israel is pictured here. No help, no hope. In other words, men, until you're lost, you can't be saved. That means it doesn't matter that you grew up in the South and that you are kind of a couple of times a year Christian. That that doesn't make you a Christian. It just doesn't. It doesn't matter what your father or your mother did or did not do. It doesn't matter if you even are a member or belong to a church. No, no. Until you recognize your lostness and your desperate need for Christ and you lay your ego aside and say, God, unless you save me, I am eternally lost. You will never find Christ. It goes for the women too, but today I'm preaching to men. You say, Jerry, why do you hammer this so much with men? You ready for this statistic in the middle of the sermon? If you, as a man, come to faith in Christ, 90 3% of the time, your family will follow you. 93% of the time, your family will follow you. If you, as a mom, come to faith in Christ, 17% of the time, your family will follow you. 17% of the time. Men, the onus is on you. You say, Jerry, I don't like that. God has clearly placed this squarely at your feet. What does he say? Verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live! It's not enough for God to say it once. I said to you in your blood, Live! I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Graphic language warning. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. I love the first four words of verse 6. And when I passed by, do you remember when God passed by you? Do you remember the day God passed by you and he saw you? Now, we must not remove this from the graphic language that it, that it is. And if you'll allow me to put this into 2014 language, what is God doing to Israel? He's checking her out. That's what he's doing. He's checking her out. Verse 8, he checks her out again. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for life. Listen, listen. If you are married today, at some point you checked your wife out. Amen? All right, you could do better than that. If you are married today, at some point you check your wife out. Amen? Amen. Of course. Of course. 
There is no marriage that works if there's not a spark that lights a fire that keeps going throughout that marriage. And if you're married, you find your wife attractive. That's so godly and so right. It's so funny when I sit in premarital counseling, session one is to look, you know, what do you like about the other person, all that kind of stuff. And I'll look over there, and, and they're talking, and they say all these nice, sweet things to each other. And they dance around this idea of physical attraction. They just dance around it. I'll say, come on, guys, spit it out. Do you find her attractive? Well, yes, I do. Of course. It's part of it. And God is checking Israel out. God is looking at Israel. Notice what he says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Do you know what that means? You can see that spelled out in vivid detail in the book of Ruth. What that means is, it's a euphemism for saying, I asked you to marry me, and you said yes, and we consummated our marriage on our honeymoon night together. I spread my garment over you. It's crazy graphic. What does that require? Don't miss this. That if God takes us in in our nakedness, and he spreads his garment over us, then God reveals his own Nakedness. Where? On the cross. God says, I'll be vulnerable. I'll be open. I'll be available. God is crazy jealous for you. You say, Jerry, why would Ezekiel use this language? Because it's language that catches us off guard and shocks us even. And it shows us the depth of love that God has for us. I made my vow with you to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Husbands, here is a question I have for you and you've got to take this question home with you today. Is your wife more beautiful today than the day you married her because you are her husband. Is your wife more beautiful today than the day you married her Because you are her husband. Wow. Now we're ready to man up, aren't we? God says, I adorned her. 
I put her jewelry on. I fed her well. And she became beautiful, even calling her a queen. This is a tough test. I am preaching to myself. Man, as I preach to you. But Paul, drawing on this Old Testament imagery, brings it into the New Testament. It says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, that he could present her to himself in beauty and splendor and holiness set apart. It's an interesting thing to present her to himself. You say, well, Jerry, that sounds kind of weird and self-centered. You do it all the time. Say, Jerry, how do I do that? How do I, how do I present anything to myself? If you've ever built or remodeled a house, you do it. What do you do? You envision it ahead of time. You envision that house ahead of time. And then you step into the house and you do all the work. And when you're done, what do you do, men? Well, you sit down and look at it. Right? You just sit and look. Look at that. Or yesterday I did it. I washed my Jeep. And so I, I, I take that seriously. Josh happened by the house yesterday while I was washing my Jeep. It's like, man, I just do. So I wash it. Well, I vacuum it on the inside. Armor all it on the inside. Then I wash it on the outside. I have this special vinegar solution that makes sure I won't have water spots from city water on my windows. I dry the entire thing off. I have a ladder thing where I can get up and wash the top that nobody can reach, but I can see out of the window of my house. Yes, I'm anal retentive. That has something to do with it. But do you know what I did when I got finished? I just leaned up against the carport post and just looked at it for a few minutes. It was still the same Jeep I had before, but it's clean. I like looking at it clean. Andrew doesn't care. Have you ever seen his van? He does not care. I mean, the thing is pounded with hail damage. He just paid for seminary with it. He doesn't care. I care. Or if you're an athlete, if you're an athlete, you train, you do all the physical training, and you go and you compete, and you win the wrestling match, or your team wins the game, and you get a trophy, and what do you do? You put it up in your room so that you could do what? Every now and then, glance over and remember the glory days. Back when things were good and you were young and you could run. And you look over and go, wow. We do that now. All right, husbands. When's the last time you looked across the room at your wife and you thought, 10 years has made her so much better than she was 10 years ago. Let me ask you this. What is, hear me husbands, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. What is your vision for your wife? What is your vision for her? When you picture her five years from now, you ought to be able to describe her in your mind. What is your desire for her? 
Love your wife like Christ loved the church. Number two, love your wife like Christ loves the church. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Go back to verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does, present tense, the church. All right, up until now, we've only talked about what Christ did for the church. He died for the church, all past tense. But on this verse, everything changes to the present tense. Christ didn't die for the church and leave the church alone. He died for the church, and now he still loves the church, as Christ does, present tense, the church. So what does he do for the church? This is the mystery Paul talks about. And, and uh, uh, scholars try to get at it. Paul brought it up in Ephesians 1. He brings it back up again here in, in Ephesians chapter 5. What is this mystery? Here it, it is as best I can understand it. It is a mystery, so I can't explain it fully. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be a mystery. But here's what I think Paul's trying to get at. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and resurrected three days later, something happened spiritually to him that, that, that heretofore had not been the case. He got a new body called the church. All right, he beforehand did not have the church. As a matter of fact, he loved the church from a distance. He loved the church as his future bride-to-be. He loved the church as the people for whom he would die, predicted in Genesis 3.15. But when he actually died, when he resurrected, all of a sudden he had this body formed of every single person who would believe in him through Christ. And so when you put your faith in Christ, you became part of Christ's body. So what do you do with your body? Here's what you do. Let me ask you a question. How many of you this morning got hungry? Raise your hand. Raise it, raise it high. Okay, put them down. How many of you ate something because you were hungry this morning? Raise your hand. That's what you do for your body. If your body gets hungry, you what? You feed it. You eat. How many of you got sleepy last night? Raise your hand. Hi. How many of you, because you got sleepy last night, went to bed? Raise your hand. Hi. Why did you go to bed? Because your body got sleepy and you gave it sleep. It is logical to take care of your body. The only people who don't take care of their bodies are people who have either, they've given up on their bodies, so they just live a life of, uh, usually there's some addiction involved, or maybe they are so depressed they consider hurting themselves. They have an emotional issue, a reason they don't take care of their bodies. It is illogical not to take care of your body. So when... We became Christ's body. Guess what he does for us? He takes care of us. That's what people do with their bodies. They take care of them. So this week, Jesus is taking care of you. I don't know what he's done for you, but if you've, if you've been spiritually hungry, you know what he's done? He's fed you. 
It may have been through God's word. It may be driving down the road. Dean Blanton sitting back there. I know he drives a lot, has amazing times in his vehicle when he's driving down the road. Jesus Christ at times, Dean will tell you, just it's like he's sitting next to you, isn't he, Dean? And you're, he's just in the truck with you. And you're, you're, you and he are together. It may have been through a worship time. It may have been through a song that you sung. It may be through a sermon that you podcasted. Whatever the case may be, you're driving down the road. And Jesus just, he just, he loves you. He totally loves you and he cares for you. He takes care of his body. If you belong to Christ, one of the awesome benefits of belonging to Christ is you're part of his body. And it's just natural and logical that anybody takes care of their body. And he takes care of his perfectly and wonderfully. Oh, he sits back and thinks, what can I do? to make, uh, make my body just stronger? And what could I do to make my body uh, more durable? What could I do to take care of this body of mine? It's a mystery. I don't know exactly how it works, but that's how it works. Now, how does that relate to marriage? When you get married, and this is why covenant marriage is right, and, and let, me, let me say something. Uh, I know many couples choose to live together. Uh, it doesn't work. Statistics show it doesn't work. It doesn't make for a better marriage. It doesn't. All right? You, you need to do it God's way. You need to be married. Why is this? As long as you're living with her, you could check out any time. And if you're renting the house, she's out on her own. That is no kind of commitment that anybody needs to live with or lack thereof. There are all kinds of practical reasons that doesn't work in addition to the fact that it's ungodly to have sex outside of marriage. We could go a long list. I'm just saying to you, guys, if she is the one for you, man up and in a godly way, marry her. And if she isn't, move on. Don't string her along like that. There's nothing manly at all about that. Nothing. So how does this look like? Well, when you get married, there's a covenant that you make with each other, not a contract. Andrew wonderfully preached that last week. You make a covenant with each other, and when you do, guess what? You don't plan to break that. Oh, I, I was doing a little texting counseling last night. Somebody late uh, texted me uh, yesterday evening. One and out of his marriage so bad he can't stand it. I'm saying to him, you know, you made a promise before God I happened to be there. When you did, I heard it. You're not excused from it all of a sudden. Don't know what you're thinking. But God hasn't somehow checked that off the list and said you don't have to keep that anymore. Covenant marriage is that. It's thick and thin, good and bad. It's when things get hard, you hang in there. That's what covenant marriage is. And so you become one flesh. You do. And and you leave and cleave. What does that mean? That means, listen, when you get mad, you don't go run to daddy. You know, you don't go running down and you're like, oh, he just did this to me. Oh, come on. No, you leave and cleave. That's in Genesis 2. How serious is that? There were no in-laws in Genesis 2. And the writer says, leave them. All right, so if there are no in-laws and the writer says, leave them, guess what? We got them everywhere now. So when you get married, you pull away from that. Your daddy doesn't call the shots anymore, honey. He doesn't do that anymore. You're with the husband, and the two of you have a marriage together, the two of you. And mom and dad, if you sit in here and you've got somebody who wants to run home every time there's a problem, you know what you need to do? Either speak the truth and love to them when they run home. Don't take their side and send them back and say, you got to take care of this. It isn't my job to catch you every time you fall. It is your job as a husband and wife now to figure this thing out together. Husbands, you got to love your wife. Wife like Christ loves the church. 
All right, so let me break this down and we'll be finished. And wives, it's your turn next week. You better not lay out. All right. <laughs> let me break this down. What does it mean? Number one, number one, and listen to me, get a job. Get a job. Scripture says if you won't work, you're worse than an unbeliever. Get a job. We have multiple employers in our church right now. I'll talk to three this week who have multiple openings. People will come and work for two or three days. The work is too hard, and they quit. That is pathetic. Get a job. Number two, are you ready? Quit playing video games. You laugh. Last night, I'm channel surfing before the Duke Carolina game. And it's on HGTV. There's this young couple. They bought a house. They're so excited about it. Do you know what they're excited about? He's sitting there in all his glory on national television saying, now I have a whole room. They're a young married couple to play my video games in. Are you kidding me? Yes, he's so excited. He's got a whole room to play his video games in. Grow up. Grow up. That's a fantasy world. Those people aren't real. You're not killing real people. You know, if you want to do that, join the military. Just grow up. And do you know what she says? She's totally bought into it. She's totally bought into it. She said, yeah, we got this room, and I was so concerned because it's near our master bedroom, and I was afraid that when I go to bed and read my books, and, and, and he's in there playing his video games, that I would hear it, but he wears his headphones so I don't hear it. Well, we've got some great intimacy building in this marriage. This is going a long ways now. This is good stuff, you know? Really? And then they talk about bringing children into that. Oh, that's a recipe for disaster. Daddy, I can just hear the kid yelling, got my headphones on. I mean, come on. You say, Jerry, is this a real, this is a real deal. This is a real deal. Every couple, every couple I marry, we have to talk about video games now. Everyone, every single one. In the Old Testament, do you know what they had to do? Every couple, uh, the guy couldn't serve in the military. Do you know what we have to do in the United States? Call of Duty. Can't play Call of Duty for a year. Where have we gotten? I mean, honestly, get a job, quit playing video games. Number three, Bring your family to church. If your wife is having to wake you up on Sunday morning, shame on you. Get up before everybody else. Make sure that everything's ready for your family to have a successful morning getting to church. Men, that is your responsibility, not your wife's. Take it. Take it. Paul says, it's a mystery. This mystery is profound. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. I'll ask you the two questions again, and we're finished. And I know you're glad that we are. <laughs> At least if you're a man, you're glad we are. All right. Question, what is your vision for your wife? 
How do you see her five years from now? Emotionally, physically, homes are very important to our wives. Where they live, it's very important. How do you, how do you see her? Question number two. Is your wife more beautiful today than she was the day you got married because you are her husband? One final word. I want to say this to every single woman in the room. Every one of you, please look at me. I love you as your pastor. I have a daughter who is almost 20. Wait until you find the man I preached about this morning. Don't sell yourself short. You are so much more valuable than that. Don't give your body away. Wait. It's worth it. Amen, women? It's worth it. All right, we're done.